Thanks for pressing play. Few companies have had the impact in the technology industry that Intel has had. Without Intel, the personal computer might never have happened the way that it did. And, as you know, the PC was the precursor to everything that has come since. The internet, the cloud, mobile computing, etc. And there was a time when the Intel-Microsoft partnership was so strong, known as Wintel, uh, that the two companies literally ruled the tech industry. Today, we go inside Intel. And inside the life of one of the tech industry's true living legends. Our guest is none other than Avram Miller, and he's got a new book out called Flight of the Wild Duck, An Improbable Journey Through Life and Technology. And you see, Avram is best known as the co-founder of Intel Capital. And Intel Capital has been the most successful corporate venture group in the history of the technology industry. And as a result... What Avram and his partners created became the model for corporate venture capital in Silicon Valley. He was an early investor in uh, a lot of the uh, big tech companies coming out of the 90s and early 2000s. Companies like VeriSign, CNET, $200 billion market cap maker Broadcom. And Avram also invested in Mark Cuban's first big success, Broadcast.com. In addition, he's also famous for spotting and leading Intel's initiative to create and expand residential broadband internet access. And so if you like internet in your home, you can thank Avram. What you're about to hear is a very deep, meaningful, unedited, real dialogue with a true living legend. We talk about the early days at Intel, how Intel became one of the companies that literally ruled the world, and how they lost their way the role that luck played in their success. And you might find this fascinating, why Avram does not think that longtime CEO of Intel, Andy Grove, was a great CEO. We also talk about how he thinks about spotting new opportunities and investments, how he thinks that people who are misfits and odd ducks can succeed and thrive in the world, what his thoughts are on the Intel founders, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and others, and why the strategy of, quote, trying to make today last until tomorrow, end quote, doesn't work. Also, pay special attention to Avram's four elements for evaluating startups and new business opportunities. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast. And some podcast reviewers call us things like overrated, not worth it, and offensive. No matter what call, what you call us, we are the Real Dialogue podcast for business people who value real, different conversations. And what you're about to hear is another legendary example of the power of a Real Dialogue podcast. You see, there are countless entrepreneurs, executives, venture capitalists, uh, journalists, and members of the media who would pay almost anything to pick Avram's brain. And now you have that opportunity. My friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first whole plant organic 
flax milk. And uh, if you haven't tried this stuff yet and you like uh, whole plant milks, give Malibu Milk a try at MalibuMilkWithAY.com today. My friends at NetSuite are the leaders in cloud ERP. Visit NetSuite.com slash different for your free product tour today to build the legendary platform you need in your business. That's NetSuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out SPLUNK.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E. And if you have a different mind and you like to read, subscribe to Category Pirates. Visit Lockhead.com today and uh, subscribe because if you're like me, you've done dumber things with 200 bucks. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Avram, it sure is great to see you. Great to see you. And it looks like we're off to a nice morning in Sonoma. Is that right? Yeah, it's been actually strange. It's been foggy, like San Francisco was imported to Sonoma. But uh, today I can see blue skies. Uh, So that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, we have a foggy morning here this morning in Santa Cruz as well. So just, I don't know, maybe it's the time of year. Now, um, I wanted to ask you about this word misfits. It's It's a word... I seem to hear from you. So tell me about being a misfit or hanging out with misfits or why this word misfit seems to show up. Yeah, I don't really, I'm glad you asked because I never really thought about, you know, the word itself. You know, what it meant to me was somebody who wasn't really right for the system. Uh, and uh, not that it was, you know, somebody that was, uh, had it a problem or, you know, developmental problem or whatever. But for me, what it meant is that I wasn't the kind of person who could do what was expected of me. By the way, I could do a lot of other things. (laughs) And um, I've heard you talk about your education. Yeah. And I think you and I share something about education, but I'm curious, you did feel like a misfit growing up and in school. Is that right? You know, I didn't, I think it's what people may, it's what I thought people thought of me. I'm not sure I really felt that way. I didn't feel bad about myself. I just felt like, uh, sometimes a little confused, but I think that people, including my father, not my mother, but my father, and people that were judgmental, were you know giving me the impression that somehow there was something wrong with me because I couldn't do the things that were expected of me, uh, particularly with respect to school. You know, the other thing uh, that you know I write about in the beginning of my book extensively was I was very ill, and so I uh, so I started life with uh, chronic, chronic asthma, quite bad. I mean, uh, I always use this to illustrate it. You know, I spent a year in a hospital or in a convalescent home. I was often in a hospital. So it wasn't like I just having an asthma attack. I mean, I was, I, I really couldn't breathe. So uh, in that sense, I guess I was a misfit. You know, when you can't breathe, you're probably lacking something's uh, oxygen. Uh, and so that's how I started out. But, it's, but I don't know. You know, the question would be, if I didn't have 
that illness, would I still, would I have been able to fit in? And I, I would say no. <laughs> but I, you know, I can't separate the two. Right. So who knows? Chicken, chicken, egg, tomato, tomato. Yeah. All, yeah, all, no. all you know is um, you did feel like a misfit. Who knows whether it was uh, your condition or not? Yeah. And do you still feel like a misfit? Uh, no, but I think I still feel like the odd man out often, you know, and not so much my life because my life today, you know, I'm done with working. I don't have a job. I don't have to show up any place and I don't have to wear a suit. I don't have to do any of those things. And I don't have to be around people that I don't like. And I, and I don't. Uh, choose to be around people I don't like. So, uh, but if I were to be back in my previous life, I'm, I would guess I would still feel like I didn't quite fit in. You know, I was at Intel for 15 years. Uh, I achieved a fairly high position at Intel. One of the, when I was there, there were only 28 corporate officers. I was one, but I never really fit in. I was, and that's actually uh, kind of what, cost uh, me to use the title of my book, which was The Flight of a Wild Duck, uh, which is what Andy Grove, uh, he referred to me as that. But, you know, the, the wild duck is the duck that's not going in the same direction as the other ducks. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious about this. You know, I'm somebody uh, who has felt like and continues to feel like an alien on this earth. And so, so how does a misfit uh, become one of the top officers at Intel back when Intel was back when Intel was Intel. Um, we can talk about what Intel is yeah. today if you like, but back when Intel was l literally one of the two most important tech companies on planet earth. And you founded Intel capital, which best I can tell from my memory. I mean, I remember Intel capital very well. Uh, there was a time when you folks were at least in Silicon Valley, the model for corporate VCs. And so how does this misfit achieve this lofty position at one of the most important companies in the world? You know, I, I could say uh, it was really hard, but it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't is that I had something to give the company that they needed. Uh, so, you know, we go through life, most people go through life and they go through some system, which, you know, was devised in the industrial age. And they go through their school and they, have, they take certain courses and they go to certain schools after universities and then they start a job and they, you know, they, they go up the corporate ladder and the, you know, that's the way it happens. And you should think of that uh, process is a, it's a funnel. It's a filter. It's filtering out people. It's filtering out people that don't fit. It's filtering out misfits. And and at the end, you have people that are really, really good at doing certain things and no good at doing other things. But those other things are needed. And so it's a weakness. It's a strength because you have all these people that are very, very good at doing uh, certain things, like showing up on time. But it's a weakness because they don't have the creativity, the imagination, the intuition. All this has been filtered out. Either they've suppressed it or the people that had it just didn't make it through the funnel. So my strength was not believing in that. And, and having the ability 
somehow the ability to get <laughs> in a position where I could demonstrate what I could do. And so at Intel, uh, things were really based on results. And I had results. I could make things happen. So once I could show that I could make results, once I could achieve things, everything was pretty much okay because I was judged on my contributions. But so the real question was, well, how did you get Intel to let you do that? Okay, because once they let me do it, it was okay. Exactly. How, how did you get Intel to let you do it? And, you know, and that is really a fascinating question. In a sense, you think I could answer that easily, but I can't because I thought a lot about it. And when I wrote my book, I had to think a lot about it. What was it? And I go way back in my book to when I was sick all the time. And I learned that if I could make the nurses laugh, if I could make them like me, they took better care of me. And so it was a survival issue almost. So I kind of developed a personality. And I, I could, if I could get into a one-on-one -on -one situation with someone, I could overcome a lot of what their hesitance might be. So I, I, I tell the story, and I, I think it's a, it's a funny one in my book about how uh, I got the job at Intel. Okay, so I got the job at Intel because of Les Fidesz. Les Fidesz is badge number three. Uh, uh, Andy Grove was badge number four, but you know, it didn't really matter. It was just random. But Les was always there. Les was my boss. Les is the guy who hired me. Les is. I, a guy I always worked for, and Les is my friend. I just saw him yesterday, in fact. He's doing okay? He's doing great. And he's one of the, you know, people that unsung heroes of Intel, in my opinion. You know, he he, he made so many contributions. But he wasn't, uh, he's not very well known outside maybe tech industry, even if that. But Les was looking for somebody from the outside. He had come to the conclusion that Intel had become too insular. And, and also, you know, Les was looking for somebody he could talk to <laughs> that he could learn from or have a dialogue or whatever. He was just looking for somebody. And he got permission to bring in, to hire a strategic hire. That was the concept. You know, let's hire every year somebody from the outside, somebody that's not really grew up inside Intel, hire in a senior, you know, senior position. Let's bring those people in. And Andy and Gordon, Gordon Moore was the CEO at the time, they agreed. Uh, so, so I was eventually hired as a strategic hire. I didn't even have a job. I mean, there was no job for me. It's just, just come and figure out what you want to do. But I was the only one ever hired. <laughs> it never happened again. <laughs> and uh, after you, no more strategic hires? No. And, then, and the really thing that's telling about this is in the annual report, in 1988, uh, 98, there are 28 corporate officers. I'm one. I was the last one to have joined. All the other 27 were there before me, and I had been there almost 15 years. So anyway, so Les decides he wants to hire somebody like me. I wasn't really, I was out looking for uh, work because I had been president of Franklin Computer, which was an Apple II clone, which had a famous lawsuit with Apple and, and anyway, that didn't work out. 
but I was looking for a job, but I wasn't looking for a job at Intel. I was looking for jobs in the computer industry. I was from the computer industry. You know, why in the world would I want to work for a silicon uh, semiconductor company? But Les found out about me, and he called me, and he says, you know, I'd love to talk to you about maybe joining Intel. I didn't say, why would I join Intel? But I just said, oh, that's, that's nice. If I ever get to Silicon Valley, I'll look you up. And I went out to Silicon Valley looking for a job. And I did call him and I said, you know, I, if you want to meet, we can, but it, only on a Saturday morning, only it's the Saturday morning because I have meetings and then I'm leaving. So that's how interested I was. And I'm just saying this to one of the top people at Intel, right? And so we had breakfast. We had a great breakfast. We had a great conversation and we decided, yeah, it was worth exploring. And, uh, and so I came back and God, I, I went through, I must have interviewed with 40 people over four days. It was, you know, uh, it was awful and it was great. It was great because I really got a chance to understand Intel. And it was awful because it was 40 days of talking to people that I would probably never talk to. And then I decided, you know, I want to work here because this is an execution machine. This company knows how to get things done, but it doesn't know what to do. And then in my imagination, I thought, I know what to do. So this is perfect. You know, we're going to be a, a great partnership. I'm going to help them understand what to do and they're going to do it because a great strategy executed badly is a, you know, looks like a bad strategy. I, uh, and I had learned that in digital equipment corporation, but I knew, knew I needed to get hired. How am I going to get hired? And unless it told me that Andy was the person that I had to sell. So I got Andy's book, high output management. I got it out and read it. And so it was helpful, but then I decided, you know, I'm going to have to get a notebook and I'm going to write in the notebook all the things that things I learned reading the book. And I'm going to write the questions I have for Andy and I'm going to write the things I learned during my interviews and so on. Now, I, I have to tell you, I never had a notebook. I never wrote anything down normally in my life. I remember things I don't like to write. I can't read my own handwriting very well. But so this was only to show Andy that I had read his book and I had thought about it because I knew that engineers, they're always writing things down. That So when I had the uh, meeting with Andy, I took out, uh, you know, we started talking and I took out my notebook and he could see and then uh, he, and he asked me some questions. And, and then I said, you know, can I, I ask you some questions? And he said, sure. And I had my questions down. I prepared them. And then I said, would you like my observations about Intel? And he said, yes, please. And I gave it to him. And all that was to show him. And at the end of the meeting, he, I, I, this is probably the best meeting I ever had with Andy because at the end of the meeting, he called Les and he's up and I, I was still there and he said, you should hire this guy. So, and the last thing I said to Andy is I said, why do you want me here? What's, what role do you see me playing? And Andy Grove said, well, we're going to need to change and we're going to need help to change. He was right about that. But I think I misunderstood him because he must have said to me, we need to change and you have to make us change because it was, it was very, very, very difficult to have that kind of influence on the company. Uh, so that's how I got my job. And so you were hired to be the sand uh, that, that makes the pearl. 
Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, it's an interesting way to to uh, describe that. And I once described we had a meeting with the uh, CEO of Sony at the time, and in this meeting, eventually, he asked me, uh, "What do you do at Intel?" And I'm sitting next to Andy, and I said, "Oh, I make Intel do things it doesn't want to do." <laughs> and later Andy said to me, I can't believe you said that to him. Uh, and I said, well, it's, that's, that's how I think of my job. <laughs> yes. And so I'm curious, I've often had this idea, Avram, that, and I know this is an oversimplification, but that at a very high level in business, there's two kinds of us. There are people who are more breakers and creators. They break the old thing and try to create a new thing. And then there are managers and growers, uh, and they're very good at taking something that's kind of up and running and scaling it and improving it and so forth. And I know that's an oversimplification, but if you'll just allow for that simplification for a second, as somebody who is, is, is absolutely much more, I'm 70% a breaker and creator and, uh, and only 10% a manager and grower, <laughs> but, um, how, if you're that kind of person, what I've noticed is the managers and growers can get very pissed off because you're over here disrupting, disturbing, interfering with uh, the as-is business as you're sort of trying to create maybe the to-be business. And so how do you make that work, particularly inside, you know, one of the most incredible companies in history? Well, first of all, I went, I understand your description, but the way you're describing it is like you could be one or the other or whatever. I, uh, I, I think I'm both. I mean, I grew a really, I developed a really successful organization. When I was at Digital Equipment Corporation, I managed a thousand people. So, uh, I can be, I, I, I believe I can do both. I enjoy maybe being disruptive a little bit more, but I also enjoy nurturing people and teaching people and developing an organization. And the people that work for me over the years are still in touch with me and they've done very well. And that's one of the things I'm proudest of. So I'm not like some maverick or, you know, a guy all by himself, you know, uh, trying to break the glass. That's not who I was. Uh, and I, uh, I think, well, I would agree that most people have a dominant aspect of, and I, I, I think that there's so many other ingredients. I think, uh, if you forgive me, it's just an oversimplification, you know, to look at it like this. No, good. Let, let me have it. I, I want to hear about your opinion about this. Because I think of, of uh, it's hard to even come up with a word for it, because if I say leadership, it's, I mean something about leading, you know. But, but you have all kinds of CEOs, for instance. They have different attributes. So the attributes, you know, that I think are interesting are uh, vision. I think vision is really the most important uh, thing to start with. If you don't have a vision about where you're going, you're, you know, it doesn't matter. And in a moment, I'll, I'll try to say this even more succinctly. Uh, but you have to have a vision. But if you have a vision and you can't get other people to understand your vision, to adopt your vision, okay, then what's the vision? So, the, you know, the leadership is getting the people to all have, share a vision, okay? And then there's, and so, and you could be really great. I think you could be really great at having vision and having the leadership to uh, get people to internalize that vision, to adapt that vision, 
uh, and not even be good at anything else, but then you would have to have, the other thing you'd have to be good at is getting yourself a bunch of other people that were really able to get it to happen, okay? Uh, you know, and you have to, uh, uh, you know, it's really interesting to look at some of the, the executives in the computer industry, like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, and, and to kind of look at them and try to think about what are the attributes that they had and what combination. But, you know, their strategy, so some people are really strategic, other people are not, you know, and then there's execution. So uh, a lot of what you're talking about is execution. Most of the people, as an organization gets bigger, by necessity, most of the people are going to be in the execution side. I mean, how many strategies can you have, you know? And uh, so, um, so I look at, I look at, uh, businesses. So I've looked at, you know, literally hundreds, if not thousands of businesses over my life and entrepreneurs and so on. And I broke it down into four elements. So the first elements, this is the four elements you have to have to be successful is opportunity. You have to be going for an opportunity. I don't believe you can create opportunities. I believe you can recognize them. And the analogy I like to give is if you like, if you like to surf and you know how to surf, you have, you get a surfboard and then you have to go to a beach where there are waves. You cannot make a wave. So some people are able to see the opportunities before other people. And, and that can give you a competitive advantage for sure. It could also end up in you're doing something too early. We can talk about that. <laughs> but, but first you start with opportunity. And when I used to have companies pitch me, I would make them do this. I, I still make them do it if I ever look at a new company, is tell me about the opportunity. Because if I don't believe in the opportunity, nothing else matters. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes I refer to opportunities as, as neighborhoods, you know, a good neighborhood, a neighborhood that's going to evolve and develop. But after you have an opportunity, you have to have a strategy. How am I going to go after this opportunity? And there isn't just, usually there isn't one strategy. There could be many. When people, when I, if I get to the strategy side, I ask people not only to tell me their strategy, but I asked them to tell me the other strategies they thought about. And if they don't, if they hadn't thought about any other strategies, usually the meeting's over, <laughs> you know, because you can develop, you know, if I gave you, if I was a teacher, I would give somebody an opportunity and I'd say, you know, class, give me five strategies, you know, or, you know, what, were there other ways that Amazon could have developed? You know, what were the other strategies that Jeff Bezos could have considered? So then I, if I, then I have to believe in the strategy. Then I get to the execution is how are they going to achieve this uh, strategy? You know, that has to do with the team, but it has to do with how they think about it, how they want to work about them, whatever. A lot of venture capitalists focus a lot on this area because they gotten, they've gotten good at recognizing teams that can work well together. And clearly you need a good team, but that was never the driving force for me because 
you know, going back to my analogy about neighborhoods, I'd rather have a bad house in a good neighborhood because I could fix the house, but I can't fix the neighborhood. And, and so I'm really, really focused on, and that's how I ran, you know, my part of Intel Capital was, you know, how do you go through these steps? And then there's the rewards. So if you have a great opportunity, you have a great strategy, you have great execution, uh, it, you may not actually have a great reward because, you know, it may be too expensive, it may be hard to get the capital, you know, whatever. So, you know, I was always looking at the end of the day, one of my tasks was to make sure that we got a return on investment. By the way, we got an amazing return on investment. It was unbelievable, but uh, but that wasn't why we were doing it. But we had to have a return on investment, otherwise they wouldn't let us do it. You know, they left us alone because we were making so much money. Uh, Funny how that's true in the venture capital game, isn't it? (laughs) Well, but we were in the venture capital game. We were inside, you know, a huge company, Intel. You know, had a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of people in the finance organization and other places, and you know, uh, we because we made a lot of money, they didn't bother us. You know, we weren't asking for anything. We were paying our own way. <laughs> so that was that was really good. Anyway, so that's a so when I look at it, and I look at myself as a person, my greatest strength in terms of adding value uh, was in recognizing opportunities. And I do that consistently. And I still wonder what, how <laughs> you know, I, I have some ideas about it, but because I'm in, I'm very intuitive. And I, my definition of intuition is when you know something, but you don't know why you know it. And it used to drive people crazy at Intel, because if you didn't know why you knew it, you didn't know it as far as they were concerned. I used to have to make up facts, <laughs> you know? uh, but you know, finding the opportunity and then you know i'm pretty good in strategy i wasn't i could i was good at execution in the sense that i understood how to get everything done and what had to be done and how to set it up and how to organize it and so on but i didn't like doing it so i always had to have people around me that liked doing it uh and fortunately uh there were many unless who was my partner, you know, senior partner in a sense of Intel Capital, he was really good at the process stuff. So we were really complimentary. You know, we figured out all the processes together and, you know, uh, I was, you know, I would never have succeeded without less. I like to think he wouldn't have succeeded with Intel Capital without me, but I know I would not have succeeded without him. Hmm. It's interesting. Um, I was thinking about my, my, so we have a newsletter called Category Pirates and I um, write this newsletter every week with two partners. And I was thinking about this yesterday. I had a long conversation with uh, one of the two, Nicholas Cole. And after I got off the conversation, it really struck me what you're on. I thought, you know, none of this would be possible without all three of us. Like you take one out and it's not going to work. And that's an incredible feeling to achieve in business when you have this uh, interdependent, um, powerful relationship where you can sort of, it's very obvious what the contributions of the different people are. Yes. Well, Intel 
you know, Intel was formed, there was, you know, I'd say really by three people, Bob Noyce, Gordon Moore, and Andy Grove. You can't imagine three people so different. You know, I had for the fortune to know all three. You know, Bob was still at Intel when I joined and we became friendly and I flew with him on his plane, you know, jet plane or whatever. So, and, uh, uh, uh Gordon was around for much longer and then, uh, and then Andy. So they were so different. Bob was extroverted, had a personality, but he was also visionary. He was the one who had the vision, had the vision, uh, especially, you know, for the, for the company like Intel or before Fairchild. And it was Bob that had the vision for the uh, microprocessor. Bob, who annoys, uh, who greenlighted the first microprocessor. Andy didn't want to do it. Andy sort of as a distraction from the memory business. It was really against. Wow. Him. That's amazing uh, to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andy was usually against something until he was for it. You know, it started, it would always start with being against it. But Gordon is known for Moore's, uh, Moore's Law. But it's funny, if you were to say, ask anybody about Gordon Moore other than, you know, Moore's Law, they couldn't tell you anything about him. You know, he was very introverted. He was very quiet uh and other than the people that worked with him nobody knew much about him you know but he was a genius he is a genius he's still alive and he was very strategic he understood and to give you an example is that he realized how cyclical and why the semiconductor was so cyclical and what would happen is that when the when the business was doing good, people would overinvest, and when the business was doing bad, they would stop investing. And Gordon decided that's not right. What we should do is we are going to make our investments independent of whether or not we're in an up cycle or a down cycle. We're going to systematically increase our R and D and manufacturing capability, and we're going to ignore ignore the ups and downs. No, that's that's strategy. Uh, Andy was the guy that made the trains run on time. His strength was execution. And if it wasn't for Andy, there would have been no Intel, no Intel success. So each of these three individuals owned and created what Intel became when Intel was Intel, as you said earlier. <laughs> and but. Bob left and sadly died young. Uh, Gordon turned over the reins to Andy Grobe in 1988. Andy st uh, uh, stayed until 1998. Maybe it was 87 they gave him. Yeah, 98 uh, Andy uh, turned over the reins to uh, Craig Barrett. Andy was not good at seeing opportunities. And he would see anything new as being a distraction. You know, whatever you started new would have to be by definition. It wasn't there yet. So why are you wasting time on it? And that's what he would always accuse me. Why are you wasting time on this? 
you know, why are you wasting time on broadband? You know, why are you wasting time on the nineties? Broadband sounded like a waste of time, didn't it? (laughs) You know, not to me. Uh, and so it was essential, but, uh, and so Andy, you know, he could be strategic, but basically the thing that drove him was the execution side. He was muscle bound on that. And he's considered one of the greatest CEOs of all time. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't share that view. Really? Uh, and people sometimes get angry with me because I say, say that. Uh, and it's hard to say it that way, too, because Andy... As somebody that was very important to me personally, uh, who I had the utmost respect for personally, who also did great did great things for me. It was Andy who, uh, and Les, who made me a, a vice president at one of the top companies of the world. And so I have great gratitude for Andy. But I'll tell you why I say this. Because... The most important thing you need to do as a CEO is to have a succession plan. And Andy, he had a succession plan. It was just a bad one. It was going to give, you know, turn it over to Craig Barrett, who had been his number two, who was, you know, came out of the manufacturing organization and, you know, was a very strong operations person. And then Craig, eventually, you know, there was a succession of, ever worse CEOs. Now we have Pat Gelsinger. It's a different story, hopefully. But, you know, uh, so that was one thing. The other thing is that Andy, you know, he didn't bring in, he didn't attract new people. So you saw all the people were the same people and he regurgitated those people. He basically just moved them around. Uh, So they were all, as I mentioned earlier, of the 28 vice presidents in 1998, I was the last to join almost 15 years earlier. And so you think Andy made a mistake in not bringing in more new blood? Of course, because the world changes, you know, and you can either bring the new blood directly into the company, or you can try to acquire a company. They're different ta- ways. You know, I just saw that uh, Zoom bought some, a company in an adjacent field. I remember that one. And I thought to myself, they're smart because they know that someday somebody's going to do to Zoom what they did to Skype, <laughs> you know. And so the world changes. You can't expect it to stay. And the, and the trouble is it changes the things that, uh, you know, the mammals that eat the dinosaur eggs, you know, they're little small little things, you know. And it's so funny that Andy didn't understand, didn't practice that. Because I have to say he understood in the abstract because he wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive, and he discusses this. Which is still considered one of the greatest management books of all time. I mean, young entrepreneurs read it today. He didn't practice it. Wow. That's a stunning statement. It's amazing to hear that. You know, it's it's hard because people get angry with me, you know, and I I I probably get a lot of flack from people who are anti-lovers. But for me... Liking somebody like I do, Andy, and uh, and and saying they're a great CEO. No, I, I I would not be a great CEO. I can say it about myself. Uh, okay, and I didn't I didn't ha- I I could have had the opportunity, I guess, but at some place, but I didn't want it because I knew I recognized it wouldn't be the right thing. And, and it's funny, I 
some of the group, people I think are the greatest CEOs are people that I know knew, but I didn't particularly like. Jeff Bezos, I think, great CEO. Uh, Steve Jobs wasn't a good CEO. He's an amazing thing because he became a good CEO and a fascinating evolution of Steve Jobs. So, you know, you don't have to be, it's not a criteria for success that Aubrey Miller likes you. That's clear. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because I've worked with some amazing CEOs who you could argue I've enjoyed working with, but I don't want to go have a beer with them. I, I kind of think they're not necessarily bad people, but there's enough asshole in them that spending time with them personally is not what I would want to do. Is that yeah. sort of what you're talking about or, or what do you mean? Well, yes, I guess. I mean, I didn't like, uh, I admired Steve Jobs. I probably wrote more about, you know, a blog, two thirds done. And I realized one day that I had written so many pieces about Steve Jobs. And I, I realized, you know, I, I had admiration for him. I kind of wanted to be him, but I didn't want to be like him. You know, I wanted, but I would have been so happy if I had been able to do the things he did. You know, and uh, and I knew him, you know, I didn't know him really well, but I mean, I knew him well enough to sit at his kitchen table and have coffee, but I didn't like the way he treated people. And Jeff Bezos, I didn't know that, that well, but I'm you know, around him a bunch of times, but he seemed really odd to me. Uh, oh, sorry, my Siri came up. I don't know. Sometimes you say a word and it triggers her. <laughs> uh, I don't know why she's like wants to get maybe, in the maybe conversation. Maybe is it uh, is it Alexa listening to you and she doesn't like no, what I you're don't, saying? I don't. <laughs> I don't usually. No, but uh, yeah, that could be. I say something bad about Bezos, but well, actually, if it's Siri, maybe it doesn't like what you're saying about job. Maybe she doesn't like what maybe, you're saying about jobs. Right, <laughs> right. Her boyfriend. Uh, yeah. So, you know the. The ingredient, you don't remember the four things I said. So Bezos probably demonstrates it the best. You know, he saw opportunity and not one opportunity. He saw successive opportunities. And then he was able to develop strategies for it. And then somehow, I don't know, because I have no insight into this, he was able to execute those strategies. Evidently, he was able to find the right people empower them. He had ways of managing. I've read about, of course, I've read many books about Amazon, you know, how he, you know, managed his company. So it must have be, uh, it must have worked because look at it, look at Amazon now, uh, you know, and so, but look at Amazon now and then look at Intel now, you know, look at Apple now, look at Intel now. Well, and that sort of Intel now, how do you feel about Intel now? I'm, I'm surprised about one thing, but not surprised about another. Okay. I, I, I knew that Intel was not going to be able to make, uh, to keep the music playing. Okay. First of all, Intel, and I, I need to say this uh, clearly before I even talk about Intel. There are two, two things they go, go into two other things that go into success. One is you have to have luck. You know, luck plays such a big role in, in uh, defining success. Luck's not enough, but you have to be lucky. 
And then you have to not mistake luck for being smart. You have to recognize that you were lucky. And also, you you know, the people that are, have been really successful, and, 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 my, and my guess is you always find luck in that, they need to understand that the people, sometimes the people that are, have not been successful, just weren't successful because they didn't have luck. You know, they shouldn't think so highly of themselves, you know? You know, that every day I'm grateful that I was lucky. You know, I could be, you know, I started, before I started my professional career, which started in, in medicine, you may have read, but I mean, I, I was the night manager of a pizza parlor. And before that, I was a merchant seaman, you know? So, you know, uh, luck played a huge role in my life, and I'm grateful for that. Well, and you know, the interesting thing that people forget, you and I were lucky the minute we were born to who we were born to and where we were born. Of course. Because well, if, you of course. Were, if you were born in Afghanistan, you're not having a very lucky life right now. And you and I had as much control over to whom we were born and where we were born as anyone else on planet Earth. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for sure, we have to be humble and thankful. But uh, so Intel got lucky. Okay, Intel didn't create the personal computer. Intel, in fact, you know, there's a famous thing about, you know, crush and going out and, uh, or uh, no, I guess the document I'm thinking about was when they were starting to work on the uh, th uh, 386, maybe it was, I can't remember. So forgive me which one, but anyway, and they had, uh, it must've been earlier than that. Uh, it, the, uh, maybe it's the 8086, but anyway, they had a list of, of uh, all the applications, the personal computing and 50 top applications for microprocessors. The personal computer was not one. Okay, so, <laughs> uh, so you know, the story of the IBM PC, which is now 40 years old, the anniversary of the IBM PC, I, I do also write about it a bit because I knew a lot about what happened. Uh, you know, it was kind of an accident. Uh, I mean, what happened was an accident. You know, uh, obviously there was an intention to make a personal computer, but it was not an intention to make a personal computer industry. That was the last thing that IBM wanted. They just wanted, they wanted a personal computer. They didn't want a personal computer industry. They were not selling anything to the personal computer industry. Intel and Microsoft were the suppliers to the personal computer industry. IBM had a personal computer for a while. All of a sudden, the tail started wagging the dog. Yes, Avram? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 I say they, they, uh, it's fitting to say, you know, they created a virus that infected the computer industry of the time, you know, and, uh, but so Intel didn't do anything to create the PC. And Intel was doing a lot of things, which I know of because I was there at the time, uh, that had nothing to do with the PC. And Microsoft, you know, didn't create the PC. And uh, Intel didn't even want to have the next generation to the, you know, they wanted to develop a different architecture. I talk about that a lot in my book because they, because the, the x86 architecture, the 8086, the 286, the 386, 486, whatever, Pentium, you know, had a lot of flaws architecturally. And the only reason anybody ever used it was because it ran DOS. 
And the only reason the anybody you ran wanted DOS was because IBM had originally used it in the PC, and now the applications ran on top of it. Okay, so uh, so Intel had all kinds of programs basically to compete with the eighty six architecture. Supplant it. Also, Microsoft Microsoft the operating system plan was Xenix, a version of Unix. And Intel, Mike, and and Microsoft were talking about. You know how to get Unix is the you know key thing, and use a different architecture than the two than the eighty eighty six. But once the sales started happening, once the customers basically defi defined the industry, then this what uh, this professor that worked a lot with Andy uh, that said uh, that uh, the, to use the term strategic recognition. But you 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 see something, and a lot of things are like that. I mean, Facebook was recognition. Of what people wanted to, it wasn't uh, what people wanted because people told them. Anyway, when you see that, Intel all of a sudden said, wait a second, you know, we've got to forget about everything else and get on this thing. And so then Intel's focus, completely focused on the PC and everything around the PC and Microsoft the same. Okay. And, and so, the way I used to describe this is I said, when I joined Intel in 1984, it was in the memory business. It was selling silicon by the ton. But along the way, they discovered the microprocessor. It was a vein of gold. And I would tell Grove this. I said, you know, I said, you know, you, you're going to extract every ounce of gold from this vein. And you know where you're going to be? In a big hole. <laughs> so uh, that's what happened. They extract all, all the gold, but they didn't, you know, uh, mine anything else. And, and why did they miss everything that came after, or maybe not everything, but so much of what came after the PC, whether it's the Internet itself and then the cloud and, of course, mobile? And well, I think there were some of us at these various inflections that thought at any minute now, Intel's going to start leading somewhere here. And it, it just didn't happen. Yeah. So it's, in some ways, it's greed, I think. Okay, we knew about many things. We knew about uh, broadband because I played a leadership role in creating residential broadband with both the cable industry and DSL and invested a lot of money in different businesses in the uh, home broadband market. I mean, at Intel Capital, you seeded most of the companies or certainly many of the companies that pioneered, uh, for lack of a better description, computing coming to the home. If you think of four quadrant model, and let's say we're in the 1990s, early 1990s, and we're looking at the home. And on one axis, we have interactivity. So high interactivity, low interactivity. And on the horizontal axis, we have high connectivity, uh, low connectivity, and uh, high connectivity, okay? So in that four-quadrant model, the television clearly has high connectivity and low interactivity. The radio has low connectivity and low interactivity. The personal computer had high interactivity and low connectivity. So, uh, so I identify, I said, something is going to fill. And this, by the way, this is how you 
one of the ways you analyze opportunities. But, but anyway, something's going to fill the quadrant. I love that you're answering a question that I've been sitting on since you mentioned the four things. So, so keep going because the question, the obvious question is, okay, Master Sensei, how do we recognize opportunities? So keep going, well, this, this is one of the ways, okay? So if you can find something where there's a four-quadrant model where one of the quadrants is vacant, I guarantee you it's going to get filled. And, and before I, before you continue, you know, one of our favorite expressions around here is uh, frame it, name it and claim yeah. it. Yeah. And if you think about that, the framing of something, that is to say the context uh, we use to think about yeah. something, to look at something yeah. is you could argue even more important than the thing. And so what I think I hear you saying is you've developed a context, a lens for breaking down oper- for, for spotting opportunity. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I so know how some do you of decide it. on this framing? So this framing that you have for interactivity, um, uh, it, it's a fascinating one. How do you arrive at the framing to get you to, is this an opportunity that I'm interested in? Uh, oh, by the way, you know, we didn't finish your other question. So do you want me to answer this one or do you want me to finish the other one and then go to this one? Why don't you finish the other one and then we'll go to the framing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just didn't. So, so <laughs> we can I, have a little ADHD theater. It's fine. So, so we knew about residential broadband and we invested, one of our most successful investments was in a company called Broadcom and we helped make Broadcom Broadcom. And, uh, you know, getting them the business, uh, and they became really, very successful and they were building all the components for, uh, broadband over cable, but also the components that eventually used in digital television because digital television uses the same packet network. Okay. And, uh, and it was because of the development of digital, uh, television, the work was being done in there that I recognized that there was the technology to do broadband because it looked like ethernet to me, you know, I recognized the, the packet structure, but anyway, so we knew about that. I met Qualcomm in the, uh, early nineties and Jacobs, Erwin Jacobs, and, uh, was the founder. And when they explained to me CMDA and also packet network, and I looked at this thing and I said, Oh my God, you know, we're going to have basically wireless ethernet you know that's why i thought about it way i didn't call it the internet at the time because we didn't use the internet that way but we're going to have this wireless you know network and i brought the whole idea of uh qualcomm back to intel and uh and i i said you know we should really invest in this company we weren't i was no longer advocating at one time i advocated acquiring companies inside intel but that that really didn't work out the 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 culture was so strong in Intel that the antibodies would reject, you know, the foreign object, you know? So I was like, that's why we got it started Intel capital and we're investing. So let's invest, let, you know, let's invest in Qualcomm. And Les said, uh, it was Les I first talked to and said, no, he says, you know, we'll never do this because, you know, this is, you know, the Intel doesn't want to be building things for phones. You know, that's how, you know, at the, and because at the time, you know, the thing the phone did was, I mean, you had text messages and, you know, which almost nobody in the U.S. used in Europe, they were using it. And then you called somebody on the phone. It was a voice. You know, why, why would you want to be on a telephone? My God. You know, so uh, in fact, I, it was a, 
it worked out for me because I said, okay, well, if we're not going to invest. Can I invest? And because normally I can't, I wasn't able to invest. Say, oh yeah. So I invested in, in Qualcomm before the, their IPO, which was really nice experience. Probably not a bad investment uh, at the Miller family. Uh, no, it was, was, a, no, was, a party it was nice. that day. Yes. <laughs> no, it was nice. It was nice. So we knew, but we didn't want distractions. So that's where I go back to you and say, you know, it would have been a distraction because what you want on these new opportunities is you want your best people. And, but the best people you want in the big business because the big business is going gangbusters and you're making so much money. And then everybody got, I think people really get fixated on the stock price and the profitability of the company. And, you know, one of the great things about uh, Bezos is he never fixated on the stock price at all. He didn't care. Uh, and he just knew that it would work out eventually. And it certainly did. You know, I, I probably, maybe now that he needs money to go into outer space, he, 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 he watches the stock price. But in those days, he, in a, for a long time, he just, he didn't care. It doesn't. I don't think he still does. Avram. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, Jeff Rossman on the podcast fairly recently, the guy who's written all the, um, how to be like Amazon books. And he was a senior executive there. Yeah. One of the stories he shared with me, interesting, interestingly, was at the beginning of the pandemic, as soon as it was clear, you know, that we are in for real trouble here, uh, according to John, uh, Jeff had a big meeting with all of his key folks and said, listen, I don't care about the stock price. I don't care about our revenue, earnings, margins, our guidance. I don't care about any of that stuff. The world's in trouble. Let's focus on this. Let's retool our supply chains if we need to do that. Let's just stop everything and do what we can to help people through this pandemic. That's sort of in a nutshell what John shared with me that Jeff did. Mm. And further, John said that Jeff assumed they would miss their numbers and that the stock price would crater. And he said, F that, I don't care. We're going to do what we think is right. And if people right. need, need service at home, we're going to deliver it. Good. Well, I didn't know he did that, but it's uh, that's great to know that. Uh, of course, that was the right thing. So anyway, that was so. Why didn't it do it? Just to wrap that question up is because it wanted its best people in the core business, which somehow it imagined was just going to go on and on. Okay. Uh, and so it just thought x eighty six was going to keep going, and we were going to have the ten eighty six and the twenty eighty six and the. I think it failed to understand, and that's actually one of the things I take on my shoulders uh, myself. Uh, I mean, I totally exposed Andy to everything, you know, because I was, you know, I was pretty uh, outside guy. You know, I was an extrovert. I had, uh, you know, I knew people in all kinds of industries and and I would bring Andy around to meet people. And, you know, I took Andy to uh, uh, year after year to the Allen conference in Sun Valley and so on and introduced him to people. Uh, and so he knew, and he would demonstrate the internet or whatever, but I think he didn't fully understand that, uh, that where the action was moving there, you know, and that the computing would move there and that more or less the PC in the home was a kind of a display because since you had so many other devices out there uh, that you were connected to, you know, you didn't want to take 
uh, advantage of the proprietary aspect of something. So one of the problems that, you know, the difference between Microsoft and Intel uh, back then was that Intel could upgrade systems. They had customers and they could get them to upgrade uh, easily, but uh, they could, but Intel had to get people to kind of not upgrade, but exchange buy a new computer or new people to buy a computer. It was a much more difficult problem. So Microsoft was not interested in, uh, this was a big tension between us. And I mean, a tension that I, I can uh, witness many times in people screaming at each other, because uh, particularly Bill was a big screamer, Bill Gates. Uh, Microsoft wanted to make sure that whatever they added in terms of new features would run on uh, computers that were around for a long time. Whereas, Intel wanted Microsoft to develop things that required a new computer because that was the way they made money. So they had business models that were really uh, uh, in opposition and that really cre it created a lot of tension. So the thing that, you know, you could ask, well, what could Intel have done to keep things going? I don't think it could have kept things going. I think it was a blip. You know, the blip was that people wanted uh, PCs, they wanted to run Windows uh, before that DOS. They wanted they, uh, the software for that all ran on the Intel processor. Intel sold the most processors, so it, it could invest in the technology to make the processors very powerful. And so the, there was a cycle there, but eventually it ran out. And so what Intel should have done, and, and I think companies in this situation should do, is when you have an, a lot of money and you have a great stock price and whatever, you should buy other assets, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, I give two examples of that in my book, which is uh, when Steve Case realized that it was ridiculous, that AOL was worth more than, you know, a bunch of media, most of the media companies combined. He said, you know, we better buy something and they bought Time Warner. And when I was, uh, after I left Intel, I was on the board of Pacific Century Cyberworks uh, in Hong Kong, Richard Lee's company. And we had a ridiculous stock price. We didn't even have a product and we were worth $38 billion. So we sat around a board meeting once and we said, you know, we should buy some real assets. We bought the Hong Kong telephone company. <laughs> and a year later, 95% of the value of our company was the Hong Kong telephone company. Funny how that happens, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you said Intel wasn't the kind of company that would do that. And so, you know, I'm curious, and if this is unfair, tell me, but I look at it and go, well, Intel could have had a chance at being Cisco, could have been the the, the computer inside the internet, right? For, for it sure. It could, could have been the computer inside all of these new devices. Well, I so when so remember, I said I wanted to be a change agent. So I realized that Intel was kind of in a box because we couldn't do vertical integration. We could, but it would have been stupid to become a PC manufacturer, uh, you know, to go upstream. We couldn't go into the software business, even though we had the capability, because Microsoft would have retaliated for sure. We it didn't make sense to become a disk manufacturer. That wasn't a good business. You know, so we had no way to reach the end user because in a sense, we thought of the PC manufacturers, not as our customer, but as our distributor. Uh, you know, the customer being the people that use the personal computers. So I looked around and I said, you know, the best place for us to be, the best neighborhood for us 
to go into would be, you know, to go into the networking business, but not on the component side, because then we'll be in the same place. Let's go one level up. So let's be like Cisco. In fact, I said, let's buy Cisco. And Cisco was worth about $100 million at the time. It wasn't public. And I and I, I went to the board of directors of Intel and I said, we should go in the networking business. And I explained why and all the rest. I got a you know, general agreement. I looked, Cisco was my, the company I, I thought was would have been perfect because I decided the router was the microprocessor of the network. <laughs> and, and so that goes back to uh, looking at opportunity, you know, because some device, you have all these devices and some device is going to be the device. I, 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 it's like the PC and, and the telephone. I used to say the PC is the black hole of technology because anything comes near it, falls into it, you know, and becomes part of the PC. It becomes, you know, <laughs> and a feature. back in the day, you would open the PC up and there was a whole bunch of shit inside there. And there was yeah. all that extra room in there and looked like yeah. you could store old socks in there and who knows what. <laughs> right. But we used to have calculators and word processors. And they fell into the black hole, okay. And the and so we uh, and when the telephone first came out, and I I remember I in '99 I saw a telephone that had a camera, and I said that's the end of the camera, <laughs> I, because, you know I I'm only going to have one thing in my pocket, <laughs> there's only room for one thing in my pocket. It's going to be this thing. So unfortunately, I brought it to Andy, and Andy said. You know, it's too expensive. Cisco's too expensive. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're not going to do it. So then I looked around and I found 3Com. So I said 3Com was the leader in the Ethernet boards. So that's the other side of the router, you know. So I said, okay. And that was more like Intel. Uh, okay. Uh, we even made Ethernet chips. But uh, 3Com was in a lot of problems. They had a lot of problems. They had a lot of competition at the time. So Andy said, you know, that company is a pile of crap, you know, you know, why would we want a company with problems? And I got angry and I said, I got it. We don't want any, we can't afford anything we want and we don't want anything we can afford. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, so then I, you know, I, I continued, I did buy That's a great. Uh, room. Yeah. <laughs> I, then I decided what did Andy I had to, say when you said that to him? Oh, I mean, like, listen, to, you could say anything to Andy. You know, he, you know, he would say something back, but you would never get in trouble. You know, I called, I wrote him a memo once where I said, uh, <laughs> Paul, Paul Alini was his technical assistant at the time. I wrote this memo to Andy. I said to Andy, you know, uh, when he rejected some idea that I had for the future, I said, I said, you are like a 40 year old rock star. Your strategy for tomorrow is to, to make today last. I, you know, I said, you're the Mick Jagger of technology. <laughs> but you could say that. Your strategy for tomorrow is to make today last. Yeah. I actually, I use that again in a Forbes article about this the uh, telephone industry. I said, their strategy for tomorrow is to make today last. <laughs> it's, a, it's such a great quote. And it's true, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it around true. here, we often say there's two kinds of companies. There's 
companies betting on the future being a continuation of the past, and there's companies betting on a different future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it's uh, yesterday's vision using today's technology available tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Oh, I just wanted to let you go back to your other, your last question about the four, the matrix and naming things and whatever. If you want to go back to that, I don't care. Yeah. Fr framing, naming, and claiming. How do you set yeah. the framing to see the opportunity as you described with the, ma the, the matrix around interactivity and, and broadband? I, I think I said earlier, I'm not quite sure how I do it. I know some of it. Okay. So you know, one of the things I think is really important is just to be observant and curious. And so one of the reasons I knew that broadband was going to be important in the home, you know, why did I think that? Well, I started seeing people staying late in the office to use their computers to get on AOL. Okay, so, so once I saw that, I knew uh, they would want it at home. You know, it was uh, it was clear. I mean, I have to, and so, but if I wasn't observant, if I wasn't curious, if I didn't go up to people and say, "What are you doing?" or whatever, so uh, so I think one of the ways you find opportunity is is just being being very open and very curious. Also, a lot of opportunities have to do with solving people's problems. So. You know, if you just went around and said, what is, you know, what are the things that irritate you? <laughs> you know, what are your problems? You know, you get a lot of things. The other thing I do, <laughs> which is really funny, I call it mining the graveyard of failed companies, failed startups. So a lot of people have, you know, these visions. And usually they're, and many times they're technical people and they start too early. So they start to, you know, uh, like, remember Webvan? You know, a lot of money was spent on well. Webvan. Okay, and then it failed. But of course, now that's exactly what we're doing, right? And so what happens- I don't know, doesn't, doesn't Amazon look a lot like Webvan today? Yeah, but, but there's many things that look like Webvan, you know? And so what happens is there's a cycle here, which is that people, go up, uh, people start seeing something and they start to build companies doing it. They see it too early because there's a lot. And I, and I can, I can, I can, I want to mention Steve Jobs in a moment about this, but they see it too early. Uh, they go for it. They raise money. There are reasons why it can't work, uh, various reasons and they fail. And then the people that invested and people people have a bad taste in their in their mouth about it, you know. And so when you come later with the same idea, no, that's not going to work. So so a good thing to do is, I mean, if I was like, if I was, uh, you know, reactive now wanting to start a bunch of companies and whatever, I'd be constantly looking at who are the big failures and why did they fail? Okay, because why did they start? You know. Uh, is uh, uh, probably pretty clear, you know, and but why and why they fail? Have the reasons that they failed been removed? 
you know, so th so there's many things. I hope to write, you know, uh, my I wrote a I created a website for my book, which is called WildDuckFlight.com, uh, and on the website I have two sections. One is uh, called Lessons, and I and when I was starting to write my book, which you know is called The Flight of a Wild Duck, I wanted to have stories and history and lessons, and but the book got so big, it's 360 pages, and I had to finish it. I spent three years. So then I decided I won't do the lessons. <laughs> well, would you in the get book. on with it, Avram? I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. I went to the lessons in the book. I would put them on the website. So I have about 100 lessons, and each lesson is about one page. Uh, and so I'm going to, and this way I can do it incrementally. I can write the lessons incrementally. And then I have essays, and the essays are starting with the things I, outtakes of the book, because I wrote about things in the book, but it didn't, you know, it didn't, it broke the flow of the book, but they were still good things, I think. Uh, like I wrote a lot about the IBM PC that I didn't put in the book. So I'm going to have the essays. So I'm going to try uh, to do a better job of this. But, you know, the thing I said earlier about opportunity, strategy, execution, and reward, I have kind of branded that, I, uh, you know, and I call it oyster. And uh, so, you know, my wife, who was a, a great graphics artist, is going to create a, some kind of graphic for it, Oyster, but because I really do believe in that. Do you have a, a newsletter? Do you have a Substack, Avram? No, no. And I, I have a blog. It's called Two Thirds Done. I haven't written a lot on my blog uh, recently because of the book. Okay. And on my blog, I just wrote about whatever I felt like writing about, you know, and because I have a lot of different interests, you know, this is, you know, uh, things I like to, you know, that I write about the things I'm thinking about. So who am I to tell you what to do? But it may be an opportunity. Uh, we've been shocked with our newsletter, our Substack newsletter. Uh, we started it roughly six months ago. And uh, last time I checked, we were the number 12 on the business paid charts on Substack newsletter. And so it's just exploded in a way that I never could have anticipated. Why is Substack different than, uh, than Medium, for instance? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I write on Medium not that often. I think the biggest difference, at least for us, is uh, we're not waiting for an audience on Medium to come find us. Substack is much more, you give us your email address and we send you a newsletter. And so we're building our own audience and because it's an opt-in kind of situation, um, the people who want to read it, read it. And so our open rates and all of those things are incredibly high. So it just seems like a more effective model. You can absolutely do both if you want. We've just had so much success on Substack. It's compared to this, you know, I had virtually no success on Medium. Well, I, you know, people subscribe to my blog about, I guess, 2,000 people. But, you know, I would say generally when I write a blog post, I probably get a couple hundred, 200, 300 people that actually read what I write. But but I don't want to have a commitment to do anything. You know, I'm 76 years old. I'm like, I don't want to be, you know, committed. I got a lot of things I want to do, you know. So I, I write when I, either because I, I'm excited about something or I care about something or I know something. Like I write, you know, I'm pretty good about science. You know, I was a social professor in medicine before I got with working in the technology industry. And um, so, I, you know, often I write about 
uh, COVID because I understand what's going, you know, the statistics better than most people. And because I, uh, you know, live in Israel and I have a friend on the C CDC in Israel and I, you know, Israel's like a, you know, advanced situation. There's lots of interesting things about, uh, you know, that I can learn from that. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do because I probably, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I studied music. I don't know if you've missed that, but I... It's funny. You're going exactly where I was hoping to go next, which is you have this engineering mind. You worked at one of the breakthrough engineering companies of all time and, of course, helped build that company. You invested in very leading-edge, highly engineering, product-oriented companies at Intel Capital, and yet uh, you became friends with Allen Ginsberg, you, if I understand your background well enough, at least part of your education was enhanced, or maybe you were like me, where you were saved by music, art, and drama. And so I, I guess my question is, on one hand, you have this engineering brain, but then on the other hand, you're hanging out with poets and learning music. And so you have this very uh, bizarre, eclectic, multifaceted brain, Avram. Well, you know, music's always, you know, I always say music saved my life because it kept me sane. But I didn't get into music until I was 15. I didn't know anything about it. I was really still scientifically, you know, I was a nerd. You know, I wasn't going to school much, but I was studying, you know, physics and, and ele electronics and other kinds of stuff. And I was very nerdy. And then I had a friend who was a nerd like me, still my friend. Uh, and, but he wanted to be a composer. So one day uh, when I was 15, I said to him, how does music work? See, that's how I thought about it. How does music work? And he taught me uh, music theory or gave me books and textbooks on music theory. So I was interested in, you know, how does music work? And then I started playing piano, but then I got a scholarship, a small scholarship to go to the conservatory to study composition. And, uh, and then when I was 18, I discovered jazz and I fell in love with jazz and I played jazz piano ever since and uh and took lessons most of you know most of my life i've been taking still studying i'm still studying so i make after you know i might go back i'm interested to go back and see if i can if writing a book has changed me in a way that i could compose i'd have more discipline in composing music i i struggled with the discipline of of writing music you know i because i was a jazz uh, pianist i could just go and play <laughs> yeah we've yeah. had a few legendary songwriters uh on the podcast and almost to a person they say it's no surprise if you want to be great at it you sort of got to do it every day like a job sit down at the piano yeah. or the guitar and say i'm gonna go go work on this well the practicing i could do but uh, by the way you're talking about people and people for you maybe jonathan taplin taplin do you know Jonathan Taplin? No, I don't. And he has just wrote a book you should read. You would really enjoy it called The Magic Years. And I met Jonathan in probably 97 when he started a company. It was a pre precursor to Netflix called Entertainer. And it, it wasn't streaming video. You could download video. We didn't have the bandwidth to stream. Anyway, I knew him and then later... I just knew him professionally. And then later I, I had a home in Los Angeles and he was the executive, he was the director of the Annenberg uh, Innovation Center at the uh, USC. 
And so I met him a few times, and that's when I discovered something about his life, which he writes about in his book, because he was Bob Dylan's road manager, his roadie. And then after that, he worked for the Rolling Stones. And then after that, he made a movie with Scorsese. And then he made movie. He was a movie producer, and then he worked for uh, did finance for movies with uh, I think Goldman Sachs. Then he did entertainer, and then he ended up at the university. So I read his book, uh, and he's read mine. And I read his book, and I said, Jonathan, I could have been you. You could have been me. And because he knew uh, Ginsburg and Janis Joplin and all these people that I I knew all these people, you know. But, and he knew them, and we were roughly the same age, but we were never in the same place at the same time, so I didn't know him. And the thing that I realized is, why could I have been him? Because I was around those people. You know, I used to hang out with the Jefferson Airplane, and I was kind of handy for people because I knew how to write music. You know, I was trained, and they, they weren't. I knew more than three chords. Uh, and... Uh, but I, I thought all you needed was uh, E, A, and D, and you were good to go. <laughs> that's that's what they think. Yeah, I could, well, some I guess they made a lot of money with those three chords. But uh, and you know, I didn't like. The, I like Janice's music, so and I like Dylan's music, so I want to say that. But otherwise, I didn't like people's their rock and roll, and I was in jazz, and so that saved me because otherwise, I think with my organizational skills, I could have easily ended up becoming like a manager or something and spent a lot. Also, I was hiding out from drugs because everybody I knew was stoned, you know. And I used to say, you know, I, I like to practice and then get stoned, and they would say, no, let's get stoned and then practice. You know, that was the difference. But and particularly in the jazz world, people were on hardcore stuff. I mean, you know, I was losing friends. So I, I don't want to, and I wasn't taking, but I didn't want to be around it. So I just, and then I had, you talk about luck. So I had the greatest piece of luck. So I hate to interrupt you. I just want to make sure I understand this. Here you are a beatnik, AKA hippie, self-described. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You are at the center of the universe for this, hanging out yeah. with Jefferson Airplane and Bob Dylan and, and so forth. And and you are trying to avoid taking drugs. Is that what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I Yes, I didn't want to. Uh, yeah. For whatever reason, it wasn't something that appealed to me, you know. And did you did you smoke pot? Did you drink beer? Yeah, you... sometimes. Sometimes, but I didn't really like it. But, you know, I was very work oriented in some sense. You know, and also during that period of time, I was very involved in the civil rights movement, anti-war, you know, all this stuff. I was doing stuff, you know, and I had worked my whole life. You know, my parents, uh, family had donut stores and I, you know, washed dishes and cleaned up stuff. And I, I had a worked at a jewelry store and then I was a merchant seaman, you know, and then I... Then I'm flipping, then making pizzas, you know, I was, you know, it was like, uh, so... So just hanging out and getting stoned just didn't make sense to me. I didn't. My, also, my mind was my most important thing. I didn't want to play with it, you know. And I didn't need to take drugs t to imagine things. <laughs> you know, I could just sit there and imagine <laughs> things without drugs, you know. So I could just like. So anyway, yeah, I didn't do that. But I heard you, know, you uh, on Kara Golden's podcast talking about yeah. how, if I'm if I'm remembering this right, you were changing colors as a kid on the wall. Is am I remembering yeah, the story yeah. right? Yeah, because I was a by myself. I was seven years old and uh, basically a convalescent home. 
uh, which is uh, now the Ronald McDonald home in Palo Alto. But, uh, and I was just alone. And so, uh, you know, uh, there was a TV someplace we used to watch Howdy Doody show or whatever, but, you know, I didn't have a TV in my room. I didn't have a radio. I didn't have anything. You know, I didn't have anything. I just had, you know, it's like, I try to imagine what would happen if you're locked up in prison. You must do this, you know, you must use your imagination. So it was a great thing for me because I really developed my imagination and uh, during that period of time. But I was going to say about luck, I needed a job because I had made a lot of money when I was a merchant seaman. So I was living off this money I had made and I was starting to run out and I needed a job. So I said to my friends, everybody I knew, does it, do you know anybody need who's looking for somebody to hire? And one of my friends said, well, he says, you know, I know I'm, I'm a resident for this guy at the medical school at the University of California, and he's looking to build some equipment because he wants to study people's brainwaves and see if he could teach people to control their brainwaves, Dr. Joe Camilla. And he said, do you know anything about electronics? And so I said, yeah, I know actually a lot about it because that had been my hobby. So he introduced me to Joe. Joe said, well, can you, this is what I'm trying to do. Could you build something to do that? And I said, yeah, probably I could. I said, so if I, if I do it, will you hire me? He said, yes. So I, I did, about three days, I built something he wanted. He hired me. I quit my job at the pizza store. And after a while, you know, there I was. I had a job at the university and um, doing research and Joe made me a scientist. He taught me how to be a scientist. And then when I was 24, I went to Holland and I helped found a medical institute for cardiovascular medicine. And I was probably like an assistant professor. By the time I was 29, I was an associate professor in medicine, never having gone to school. Uh, which I think is, is a kick. Very impressive. <laughs> It'd be like the equivalent of becoming an associate professor, professor in medicine by studying YouTube videos today, maybe. <laughs> no, it'd be a lot easier. A lot easier now. You think you could, you could learn a lot about medicine just by using the internet, right? Oh my God. I took a course, for instance, at Yale on uh, genetics uh, or DNA. You know, wow, you know, I, and uh, although I, I don't know that I could handle a real course, like where I had to turn in work because I still, you know, have trouble with that kind of stuff. Although I've been, I study Hebrew five days a week, but I have a private lesson because I couldn't handle any group lesson it would never work for me. <laughs> I understand that. I'm a very similar way. Now, Avram, I could clearly talk to you for 20 hours straight, but I know you, you're a busy guy. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, I, I guess, you know, one of the reasons I, you didn't ask me why I wrote the book, which sometimes people do, but I had a number of reasons. But one of the reasons, one of the things I hoped to do was to inspire people that were like me. So I believe that there are a lot of people that just can't make it in the system, but have talent and and capability and but just can't make it and i hope uh, so if anybody is listening to this and knows people like that or knows, knows parents that have children that they worried about you know maybe they they might get some benefit from reading my book and seeing that it's possible to go through this thing and end up okay and 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 then the and the thing also i would say to all the parents of people like that is 
don't judge, just love, just love your children, you know? And uh, so. Could you maybe say a little bit more about that, Avram? Well, I think parents are so worried about the future of their child. And because the world is defined by these processes and go to school, go to university, get a good job, whatever, they're worried that their kids won't be able to do that. You know? And I think that that worry, sometimes that turns into judgment, it turns into anger, it turns into whatever. You know, it doesn't help their kids. Their kids aren't going to do it anyway. You know? What you have to do is to tell them that you love them and uh, and recognize every piece of talent they have and find a way to nourish it. And also, risk is so important, and people have to be willing to take risk. Don't scare them from risk-taking. You know, teach them to be tenacious because if you take risk, you're going to fail. And if you fail, you have to try again. And uh, I'm when I'm down in uh, Los Angeles, I'm going to be in Los Angeles next week, I'm having dinner with my friend, Julie Rainwright. Julie Rainwright is a serial entrepreneur. She is famous for being the CEO of Pets.com, which was ridiculed when the, when the internet blew up. Julie Wainwright is now the CEO. And founder, I remember it well. Yeah, CEO and founder of uh, Real.Real. You know, which is worth billions, and she's done very well. And and she is tenacious. She didn't let anybody convince her that she failed. She just tried again. So she's my hero. And you know, to her credit, Avram, um, I mean, she and Pets.com were the butt of jokes for easily half a decade after the yeah. dot com yeah. crash. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who's, who's laughing now? You know, who's laughing now? <laughs> yeah, you know, see, we're going to meet at her, meet at her Beverly Hills mansion. <laughs> <laughs> but who's counting? Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I hope we've, you know, we, we chat sometime again, not, we don't do it on the air and, uh, you know, uh, and I hope that uh, people listen to this, um, we'll, buy my book and not because I want to sell books, but because I want to impact people. Yes. And I know, um, you do, you have, and you will. And, um, so I just want to thank you for your book. I want to thank you for this incredible time. Um, you know that I think you're a, a living legend in our industry and uh, what you and your, your colleagues created both at Intel overall and with Intel capital, um, is an extraordinary set of accomplishments and uh, I'm really glad you've taken the time to write the book and to reflect and now to come out and talk to guys like me and to talk to the legendary Kara Golden and, and I'm sure some others about your learnings along the way, because that's a great gift to give people. Those of us who uh, want to do legendary things in our lives and in our careers uh, need role models to learn from. And you're one of those role models. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs> Well, there he is. I sure hope you enjoyed this real dialogue with the legendary Avram Miller. You know, I know I say it a lot, but uh, this job I have, so to speak, is unbelievable. The ability to sit down with folks like him and have a conversation like that is a great gift in my life. And uh, uh, me and everybody here 
We're stoked to share these conversations with you. Don't forget that Avram's new book is out. It's called Flight of the Wild Duck, an improbable journey through life and technology. And you can pick up a copy wherever you get legendary books. Also want to let you know, uh, we have a really, well, we have a bunch of really fun episodes in the can coming up for you. But one of them is with Professor Ed Slingerland. And he is a professor of philosophy, psychology, and Asian studies at the uh, University of British Columbia. And he has a new book out called, you ready for this? Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. And to the best of my knowledge, he's the first scholar to really dig into how getting drunk helped create the modern world and why we drink in the first place. All right, we would like to thank uh, our good friends at Malibu Milk, the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. Did you know that almond milk is almost about 98% water and that a glass of almond milk contains only about three to four almonds, making it one of uh, the most damaging to the environment and least nutritional things you can drink because it takes 15 gallons of water to produce just 16 almonds. And as you probably know, we have a water crisis. Turns out flax is different. It's an eco-friendly superfood. And Malibu Milk is the world's first whole plant organic flax milk created by a mom. Give it a try now at MalibuMilk.com. That's milk with a Y, MalibuMilk.com. The small, tasty change that makes a big difference. Now, legendary companies identify and accelerate new opportunities. And you can't have, uh, you can't hit the throttle unless you have a legendary engine. And NetSuite by Oracle is the engine that you want. The world's number one cloud business system. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today. That's NetSuite.com slash different for your free product tour. And my friends at Halo App are the world's first real relationship app. If you've had it with typical social media and you want a place where you can share your real life with your real friends with no BS, check out Halo App, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P dot com. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network and all rights do remain uh, perturbed. We must uh, warn you that this podcast does get created in a studio that does contain nuts, and often the creators of this podcast are consuming uh, libations. <laughs> we are produced and edited by the living legend himself, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, Technical Awesomeness, and Lockhead.com by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by GM Simon. Don't forget to uh, read Allen Ginsberg, listen to Janis Joplin teach uh, kids music and don't forget go to lockhead.com and start subscribing to category pirates thank you candy dandy love you mom and dad and hey colin this podcast really ties the room together doesn't it today our deepest apologies go to carson sweet ceo of cloud passage sorry carsey we just ran out of time for you thank you so much for investing part of your life with us please stay safe stay legendary and until we're together again follow your difference